universal truths uh, of art in all its forms uh, is the power of contrast. Now, I'm, I'm no uh, art student, um, and my, my knowledge of art is, is limited at best, um, but I am a fan of um, uh, the artist uh, Turner, um, and he paints incredibly um, arresting uh, paintings of, particularly as far as my knowledge extends, uh, seascapes and ships out at sea. There's a number of them in the, the National Museum uh, in Cardiff, and uh, I've spent a, a few, uh, um, many a day with my children at the museum. And if you look at those paintings, you can see uh, a great contrast between darkness uh, and light, um, particularly within the, the, the sea and uh, the, the way that the, the moonlight is, is landing upon the sea, perhaps. Uh, it's really arresting. It's really capturing to, to uh, consider that contrast. And it's a, it's a universal truth which exists in all forms of art. Um, think about uh, the contrast of heroes and villains uh, in stories. Uh, how many of the most iconic stories that we know are essentially stories of, of uh, light versus darkness. Uh, some of the boys today um, had a chat, uh, them looking at The Hobbit, one of my favourite uh, books, uh, Tolkien, one of my favourite authors. Um, and that whole world, and I won't give any spoiler alerts for what comes next with The Lord of the Rings, but that whole world is essentially lightness versus darkness. Um, a, a dark presence of, of evil and, and the power of light to, to defeat that. Well, Paul's teaching, uh, which we find within the New Testament uh, through a variety of uh, letters, uh, is often full of contrast in a similar way. He underlines the wonder and the glories of grace by explaining the depths and the darkness of sin. Um, so in highlighting and promoting the, the positive aspects of Christian life, he often sets them against uh, the things that Christians should seek to avoid, against the darkness that exists within the world. Now within uh, the book of Philippians, as I said uh, earlier, a short letter to the church in Philippi, a church that Paul loved dearly, uh, who he had um, a, a long relationship with in, in establishing. Well, in chapter 2, we see him um, encouraging the church there to avoid pride, uh, to avoid the, the pitfalls of, of uh, pride and disunity. And he does so by contrasting pride with falling out, with disunity. He contrasts that with the humility of Christ, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the examples of faithful servants such as Timothy uh, to highlight that. Um, so one of the most well-known verses within the New Testament in chapter 2, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's a great contrast. Uh, don't fall into pride. Don't fall into disunity. Look to the example of Jesus, uh, the example of humility. Well, in chapter 3, where we are uh, this evening, Paul goes on to demonstrate the dangers and the pitfalls of false faith um, and false teachers false doctrines, a false gospel, by painting a picture 
of the believer that Paul himself desires to be. And in doing so, he uh, writes in, in quite an unusual manner, as we'll see. Our first point this evening is this. Watch for the dogs. Watch for the dogs. Now in this passage from verses 1 to 11, uh, Paul is seeking to put forward to the church at Philippi the need for discernment. The need to be discerning uh, in their lives. Because there are dangers that seek to steal the joy he'd been previously proclaiming. Um, Now discernment is the ability to, to distinguish between truth and falseness, um, to differentiate between that which is spiritual and that which is carnal. It's to faithfully contrast truth with error. Um, The true gospel from any form of false gospel. And, And as Paul opens it up, that includes then applying to true um, teachers against false teachers. Um, And the reason that Paul is doing so is saying the need for discernment is important. Um, If you aren't discerning, it can make you more gullible. It can make you prone to error. It can make you be easily led into things that you shouldn't do. Now, we know that discernment uh, has many applications within the world. To be discerning is is, is a good thing to be. It's good to be discerning in your your job, uh, with your family, Every avenue of choice that you make to be discerning is a a good trait. But it is primarily a God-given ability to recognize the difference between truth and falseness. And without spiritual discernment, um, a believer would be in danger of allowing themselves to let spiritual poison enter their lives. A poison, spiritual poison that could inflict damage uh, upon them. Now Paul's decision to make such a stark warning um, is so that the believers in Philippi, those believers that he loves dearly, a church that he knows well, that they might not be deceived. They might not be um, brought underneath false teaching. That they might not endanger themselves. And so we read this remarkable verse in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, what harsh language Paul is using here. That, that verse can take us back a little bit um, to, to read that within God's word, to read that within the Bible. Uh, if you know something of Paul and his ministry, it's, it's quite a, a strange verse to read within the context um, of, of Paul. And we know from, if you have read any uh, other of Paul's writings or know of Paul's ministry after he was converted, you'll know that he doesn't normally speak like this. Uh, He speaks with a lot of uh, gracefulness, a lot of grace, um, with with kindness. And such harshness is not often found in his uh, vocabulary. So to see Paul speak in this way, to see him speak with such harsh and vivid words, indicates the importance of what he's saying. He doesn't say these words lightly. And the substance of this verse, as he commands the church, look out for the dogs, look out for these evildoers, the substance of this verse is to say to the church in Philippi, be careful of those who are seeking to mislead you. 
Well, who are these dogs then in the eyes of Paul? Who, who are these evildoers? Well, most likely they were um, what are commonly referred to as Judaizers, uh, who insisted that the Old Testament customs and um, uh, um, ceremonies and the ceremonial law needed to be upheld by New Testament believers. That simply uh, believing in Jesus wasn't enough to be saved. They were saying that um, you need to, yes, believe in Jesus, but you also need to do this, this, and this. And in the eyes of, of such people, Gentiles were considered dogs. Well, and that's why Paul's turning it back on them. That's why he's calling them dogs. Because when he says that, look out for the dogs, he's not um, referring to a cuddly house pet. Perhaps you have a, a dog here, I'm sure. Uh, at least somebody has a dog here that's a, a faithful uh, friend. He's not referring to, to that type of a dog. Um, he's, not, um, he's not doing this in an endearing way, as the rest of the verse indicates. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't get pet dogs. Dogs roam wild. They would roam wild throughout the towns and the cities. They would go from street to street, from place to place, hunting through rubbish, eating whatever they could, do, uh, could eat, um, any rubbish that was thrown around. So they wouldn't be in any way discerning about their diet. They wouldn't ever turn their nose up to rotten food. That would be absolutely fine. Any maggot-filled garbage, not a problem. They would eat um, absolutely everything. And then, of course, being um, wild dogs living within towns and cities, they would then go and spread all manner of diseases uh, around the city. Um, and so to be called a dog was a deeply derogatory term. It was to be called unclean. It was mocking, it was derisory, it was an insult to be called a dog. And that is what these Judaizers were, were calling newly converted Christians. You're, you're a Gentile, you're a dog. And so it's a loaded reply from Paul. It's a purposeful reply. But Paul isn't making a comment on, on the spiritual health of these people. Uh, sorry, on, on, the, on the physical cleanliness of these people. He wasn't making a comment on, on how they kept themselves dirty like a dog. Rather, he was condemning them for spreading bad doctrine, for spreading bad teaching, for spreading uh, a false gospel. He was saying, like, like the dogs that you see walking around you, eating from bins and, and spreading disease, that is what you are like. You are spreading the disease of, uh, of a false gospel. You're the type of people that attack the true sheep rather than protecting them. And so Paul describes them as being not only uh, um, dogs, but also evildoers. And if we have a slightly different version, uh, like the NIV, it describes them as evil workers. You see, they're working to subvert the gospel. They're working, they're actively going out of their way to undermine the gospel proclaimed by, by Paul and the uh, Philippian church. And so in the midst of the, the community in Philippi, they were praying on the vulnerable, praying on those with great need, those uh, who were weak, uh, both uh, in terms of their needs and also spiritually, spreading the seeds of a false gospel. 
And uh, as workers, as evildoers, they were doing that aggressively and purposefully. Well, perhaps you are shocked by this um, depiction that Paul gives. Um, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Um, as we alluded to at the start, chapter 2 was about um, condemning disunity and um, falling out and, and looking to the example of Christ and his humility. You might think, well, that's a, a strange step to go to then. He's just been talking about unity. He's just been looking at the example of Jesus. Why would he then be so um, aggressive in his condemnation of these people? Um, isn't it much better to, to proclaim meekness and, and unity and to, to, to focus on those things? Isn't it okay just to, to disagree on examples of practice and uh, some aspects of theology? Well, the reason Paul speaks so bluntly, so specifically is that these false teachers, these dogs as Paul calls them, were insisting that legal um, observation of the law was needed for salvation. And for Paul, that was unacceptable. It's, this wasn't a, a minor theological issue that they could have a disagreement with and you know, uh, walk away from. You see, what they were insisting was that circumcision was needed for salvation. That's why he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Uh, they were uh, busy spreading the, the seed of a false gospel, saying, yes, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, but you still need to be circumcised. You can't not be circumcised. And so saying that, they were making it a requirement alongside faith. They were saying that in order to enter the kingdom, you must be circumcised. An Old Testament requirement and trying to apply it to the New Testament church. But Paul is making clear exactly what he says uh, to the Romans uh, in uh, the book of Romans chapter 3. When he writes, no one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. You see, these teachers, those, these, these men spreading a false gospel, a gospel of faith plus ceremonial law, they weren't doers of good. They weren't doing their best. They weren't being well-meaning but misguided. They were undermining and defying the true gospel. And that is why Paul speaks so harshly to them. Um, he is saying the only means of salvation is placing your faith in Jesus. And that's why in Romans chapter 3, he goes on and says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand and punished. He did it to demonstrate his, as Jesus, his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith. And so Paul is con uh, presenting a, a contrasting image uh, to us. He's dealing with darkness. He's dealing with those who seek to undermine the gospel. 
Um, his language is an indication of the severity of that. Um, he isn't willing to, to sit by and allow them to carry on sowing a false gospel. Uh, but remember, these words of, of, of harshness, these words that deal with um, uh, malcontents, come immediately, at, they're only verse 2. They come immediately after verse 1. Because actually, if we go back a verse, we read Paul beginning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he had been dwelling on the, the subject of joy. That's Paul's desire. That's his heart, that we might experience joy. And in doing so, he's then compelled to deal with those who are seeking to steal joy, to steal that very joy that should be the heart of Christian service. Um, in this case, that was false teaching, false teachers invading the church of Philippi. And so Paul is reminding the church, he's reminding us here today, um, that it's imperative that as Christians, we follow Christ and Christ alone. And when we do so, we have our eyes wide open and we walk in discernment. Uh, we seek to um, navigate through any uh, false teachings or false teachers or uh, false gospels and seek only to turn to Christ and Christ alone. Well, our second uh, point to consider this evening then is this, room to boast, room to boast. Well, this book of Philippians uh, contains several um, uh, striking uh, passages of Paul's writing. Uh, one of the things that mark out Paul as, um, as a writer is his incredible use of rhetoric. The way that he builds up arguments. The way that he presents the gospel in a manner that by the time uh, you get to the end of his thought process, everything has made a logical uh, sequence. Uh, remember, Paul uh, was a very intelligent man. Uh, he was well learned. I'll go on to that in a minute. Um, he was well-educated. And so when he makes an argument, he ensures that he presents the argument in its fullest. Um, and that's what Paul seeks to do here. He articulates the, uh, the distinction between a person whose confidence is rooted in human flesh, in, in, in themselves, and a person whose confidence is rooted in Jesus Christ. Um, and he does so by offering his own life as a case study. He presents himself in these verses. Um, and in a startling reversal, Paul reveals that even the most impressive human gains that he could possibly think of are actually a total loss compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus. We read from verse uh, 4. Do I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also? If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, in many ways, the idea of uh, being superior and boasting in one's own achievements is, is central to false teaching. Uh, placing oneself at the center. And that's precisely why Paul takes aim here. You see, the confidence of those Judaizers who were seeking to undermine the gospel was not in the Lord, but rather 
in as Paul suggests in verse 4, in the flesh, in themselves. Because their zealous work wasn't rooted in a desire to glorify or serve the Lord Jesus Christ or his church, but to pronounce and glorify their own works. Now, such a conduct might be successful in a, in a different context, but these people are messing with the wrong apostle when it comes to these things. As the saying goes, cometh the hour, cometh the man. There are a bunch of people here proclaiming how good they are, how well-educated they are, how zealous they are. Well, Paul steps forward to present himself. Uh, maybe they might have had a bit more success with one of the other apostles, um, perhaps with Peter, uh, as they did in Acts chapter 10, if you, if you read that chapter, or maybe even James or John. But Paul is the ideal apostle to be used by God within this context, within the church here in Philippi, to deal with this influx of false teachings. Um, those that emphasize the works of the law as a means of salvation. Well, why? Because no matter what claims they made, Paul could exceed their claims. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he gives seven reasons um, for him to place confidence in the flesh if he chose. He goes on, number one, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, so what? Why is that an important note that Paul uh, is giving? Uh, well, it's a mark of honour because um, he had been born into a family where the law was kept precisely. The eighth day was the precise expectation for being circumcised. Many would come a little bit after that, do their best to do so within the eighth day. But it was a badge of honor that declared the, the purity of the Jewish family to be circumcised on the eighth day. He wasn't a Gentile convert, but no, he was circumcised exactly according to the law. Uh, the second confidence that Paul might have in the flesh, he says in verse 5, he is of the people of Israel. He was a true descendant of Abraham. Uh, he wasn't um, one of these Gentile uh, converts. He was a true Israelite, inheritor of all the birthrights owed to him by the patriarchal lineage of, of being of Abraham. Uh, the third reason for Paul placing confidence in the flesh, even more so, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, why, why is that important? Um, it's something that he mentions again in Romans chapter 11. Why is Benjamin in particular of significance, um, the, 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 uh, the tribes of Israel? Well, Benjamin was the special son um, of Jacob and Rachel. And his birth had cost the life of his mother. Um, it was a kingly lineage. If you remember, the first um, king of Israel, as the people of Israel looked at the nations around them and said, we need a king just like the other nations, the first king was Saul, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, perhaps the very namesake given to Paul at birth, remember, or perhaps not remember, perhaps you don't know, before Paul's conversion, he was named Saul, just like the first king. A fourth reason for Paul to take confidence in the flesh, he says in verse 5 again, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he was a native Hebrew speaker. Um, he was from a Hebrew family. He'd been sent to study uh, in Jerusalem. 
He'd had the finest of educations uh, with one of the, the finest uh, rabbis possible who'd thoroughly trained Paul in every aspect of the law. Well, what an incredible pedigree he's saying in that short verse. He's saying of all of these um, possible ways that you could have confidence in the flesh, I have the highest amount. You can't get more. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of Israel. I was circumcised on the eighth day. You can't get better than that. And yet Paul gives three further reasons that would give him, if he wanted, if he chose, superiority when it came to placing confidence uh, in the flesh. Um, Not only was he a good Jewish boy, but he was also a Pharisee. He says in verse 5, as to the law, a Pharisee. He was a deeply committed man in all matters of religion, an ardent defender of the law of God. Um, As a Pharisee, he would have adhered to every permutation of the law. No Jew could ever outdo a Pharisee. It was impossible. And Paul had formerly been one. He was also, sickly, the most zealous of them all. So out of all the Pharisees, who were themselves the most Jewish of all the Jews, he, in verse 6, was the most zealous. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He'd actively engaged in persecuting uh, the church of Christ. He'd condemned Christians to death. He'd stood there in judgment as Christians had been stoned. In his former life as Saul of Tarsus, no one could rival his zeal. Finally, in terms of legalistic righteousness, he says in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. He'd been a Pharisee beyond reproach. There was none like him. Uh, Just as the uh, rich young ruler who met Jesus uh, in Mark chapter 10, he believed that he'd kept the law perfectly. He'd sincerely believed that for most of his life, that he'd kept the law perfectly. But what Paul is saying here is not that he should have confidence in the flesh. He's saying, look, if, if anyone should, if anyone could, it'd be me. And none of you can hold a candle to my lineage. None of you compare to my zealousness. None of you have done uh, the things that I have done. None of you can compare to my understanding and my keeping and my proclaiming of the law. But then we have one of the most profound verses in the New Testament. After saying all these things, I am a, a Jew above all, all Jews, a Pharisee above all Pharisees, As for zeal, nobody compares. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's 14 words there that we have in our English uh, um, translation of God's word. What power there is in those 14 words. 14 simple words. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Because on that Damascus road, as Saul of Tarsus uh, travelled in a a previous lifetime to go and persecute believers, um, as he travelled with arrogance and pride and self-satisfaction and self-belief, self-righteousness, that man, Saul of Tarsus, met the risen Jesus Christ. He had an encounter with Jesus. And in that moment, he was struck and he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. He was converted. He was changed. He was transformed. The man, Saul of Tarsus, was dead. 
He was now Paul, the apostle. And he knew that everything that he'd achieved in his life prior to that moment meant nothing. Absolutely nothing. That there was only one entry on the side of righteousness when it came to looking at his life. That, that, that entry on the side of righteousness was not his, uh, his background, it wasn't his, uh, the tribe he came from, it wasn't his education, it wasn't all the, the, um, the manner of activities he pursued as a Pharisee. None of those things were written on his uh, entry of righteousness. The only thing written on this man Paul's entry of righteousness was the name Jesus. Well, Christian, if you're here this evening, um, that is true of you as well. There is nothing that you have ever done in your life. There is no um, education that you've received. There's no lineage that you're from, no, uh, no family environment that you've come from that, that contributes to your righteousness. Your only merit, if you are a believer here today, is the risen Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you have contributed to your own righteousness. It is all of Christ. So just as Paul did, you need to act like it. I need to act like it. Proclaim the gospel of free grace every day of your life. That's what Paul did. From that moment he was transformed on the road to Damascus, his life was spent in service of the gospel, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Living out not a righteousness of himself, but a righteousness merited by the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, and very briefly to finish, Christ is gain. Well, as Paul relates his own spiritual biography and, and holds himself up uh, within this chapter, he describes it in great detail the earthly status and power that he'd possessed uh, before he met Jesus. Now, from a human standpoint, Paul had lost everything. He lost absolutely everything. All of those accomplishments that he, he stated, well, I, if I wanted to, I could, had all disappeared. Of far greater importance to Paul, however, is that all he has gained is as a result of knowing Jesus. As Paul makes clear, he would willingly give away everything again for the sake of knowing and gaining Jesus Christ. Verse 8 Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, that's the secret to Paul's life. And maybe you're tempted to look at Paul, if you know something of him, to look at his writings and think, well, how could a Christian ever live up to Paul, the manner in which he lived his life and uh, the manner in which God used him uh, amazingly? What's my own walk in comparison to the great apostle? Well, Paul's view was, was very simple. Upon his regeneration, upon his transformation, upon his conversion, his entire life had been turned upside down. Not just a part of it, but everything. Everything that he had previously counted as gain was now loss. He discovered that instead of being acceptable to God because of his lineage and his education and his training and his zealousness, all of those works had been rejected. Instead of um, uh, growing in, in holiness in a more superior manner than the early Christians, uh, such as Stephen, he'd, he'd lost his way. His so-called accomplishments had faded. 
Well, that's true of all Christians. But what is more is that despite all that loss that Paul makes clear, despite all the loss that we could reflect on in our own lives, despite everything we've ever felt that we accomplished before our salvation, despite every step of self-righteousness that we've ever tried to take, we have received an incalculable compensation in Jesus Christ. That's what, he's, that's what he means by verse 8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. Knowing Jesus surpasses all loss. It is of such greater value. You see, that's the secret to Paul's walk as a Christian. He realized that despite everything he had lost, every birthright that he'd had that had fallen away, every accomplishment, every honor, everything that had once been so important to him and now no longer was, everything that he'd lost, he'd in fact lost nothing because it had all been rubbish anyway. Or more accurately, as uh, we translate it as rubbish, um, in the Aramaic it would have been more accurately uh, written as, as excrement. It was all excrement. He'd swapped dirt for diamonds. The dirt of all of those accomplishments that really meant nothing, he'd swapped for the glory of knowing Jesus. Well, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our, our Lord and Savior, and if you're not a Christian here today, please read these words of Paul. And, and you, you may well, uh, it's very likely that you are um, a, a Jewish from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, the specifics to what Paul is saying may well not hold true to you. But I'm sure that if you're here today and you're not a believer, you could come up with a similar list of all the accomplishments you've tried to pursue in your life. Well, all of these things are nothing compared to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour. And when we come to know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, just like Paul, we receive not only salvation, but a great and wonderful package, a great and wonderful gift. And that's exactly what Paul opens up in the last couple of verses. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a glorious couple of verses that is to, to, to close. With every step of our Christian life, and if you're a Christian here today, you should be seeking to step more and more towards, uh, to, to, towards Christ to being like him. Well, every step that we take, we get to know him deeper. We get to gaze more. We get to take more of the treasure of knowing Jesus, a, a, a knowledge which surpasses all other uh, worth. Uh, so it's my prayer for all of us here this evening, whether believer or unbeliever, to see that all the things of this life mean nothing in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that every single one of us, from the, the youngest to the oldest amongst us, could say those 14 words truthfully within our hearts. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He alone is worthy. He alone is of worth.